This morning's scripture is taken from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. And I'm reading from the English Standard Bible from the back. So if you happen to be following along in that Bible, it's on page 1019. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but at all should reach repentance. But a day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the revelation that we have in front of us with this great word, this powerful word. Lord, I pray that fills an extra, I feel an extra sense of weight this morning because my desire is to make clear your character and your nature and and, and there's just no way to get at that without your great help and assistance. And so I pray that your spirit would come and would enliven this text so that your people can feel and sense to some degree, some transformative degree, the implications of your character and your nature um, for our lives so that this text makes a difference to us, Lord. So I pray that you would come and help us, Lord. We, I desperately need your grace and strength, and we do. We all desperately need that, so we ask for it, for your glory, for your fame, for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, for all of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, um, the hope of his return is certainly central to our faith. We've just come through the resurrection Um, And now we're concentrating on this idea that for this entire life, we are waiting and hoping for and anticipating the great return of Jesus Christ. And that's huge to us. But to those who mock Christianity, the reality is the second coming is a point of consistent ridicule. I don't know if you felt that personally or not, but it's certainly true in the world. And you've probably felt it, at least most of you. But how could you... The, the, the question we get asked is, how can you believe in such a thing? I mean, this is like a fairy tale. And so people actually just sort of laugh at the idea of the second coming. And they laugh and scorn and ridicule the idea that we sort of even not only believe in the second coming, but we actually anticipate it. We hope for it. We long for it. And that type of mockery is the issue right here in Second Peter chapter 3. Now... If you remember in this chapter in verse 4, these false teachers had come into the church and uh, they were mocking sort of this teaching. And they were saying, 
in verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? If Jesus is really coming back, then let's see the proof. Where, where is that? And they're mocking and, and, and making a big joke out of this. Which really isn't surprising because Peter says in verse 3 that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing as they follow their own evil desires. Now, when the New Testament, just to be clear, refers to the last days, it's referring to all the days between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And and if you want to check that out, you can see that very clearly in Acts chapter 2 verse 17, uh, where... Joel, the prophet Joel is quoted there and the last days begin really at Pentecost. But Peter wants us to understand that in the last days, scoffing will be the the normal experience of the church. Peter is describing what normal Christians face. It's what the first Christians face. It's what we face. It's what the church will always face until Jesus gets back. So scoffing is not something we should be surprised about. It's a totally normal experience for us. In fact, if you're not scoffed at, that's indicative of something. We should be people that are scoffed at. But as you know, we're living in an unstable world. Uh, In America, particularly, and specifically, the biblical pattern for marriage and the family, as you know, is in serious jeopardy. Really, for the first time ever, we're actually facing the realities of, of the real threat of persecution, along with increasing hostility toward the church. Because if we refuse to bend with society, then this culture will continue to show its antagonism against us as a church. And so we find ourselves in what looks like a dire situation in every respect. And yet we need to understand, if we understand the kingdom of God rightly, that we should be optimistic about the future and not pessimistic. Why do I say that? Well, this week, Dr. Russ Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, was interviewed on C-SPAN. If you saw that, it's a great interview. And in that interview, here's what Dr. Moore said. He said, if we really believe what Jesus said about the kingdom of God and about the ongoing march of the gospel in the course of history, then we don't face these issues. And he's speaking of these issues of marriage and other things like that. We don't face these issues as losers, as people who are frantic. We face this world with a kind of quiet confidence. We must not be a people who are terrified, but who are confident in the sovereignty of God and the power of the gospel. I think that's a really good and important word for us to hear. Jesus wins. That's the reality. Now, if you remember back in verses 1 through 9, there's this debate going on here between Peter and these scoffers. And the first thing they do is they ridicule the second coming in verse 4. And this is what I would call the emotional attack on Christianity. It happens all the time. Just, Just laugh at Christians. Just laugh at the doctrine. This is probably the most popular form of argumentation today that the world presents. Which, by the way, just to make this, just to just make note of this, often it's not the argument that causes people to lose their faith, but it's the atmosphere of ridicule. And as I've said before, when somebody mocks your belief in God or, or, or his word, then feel free just to say this to them. Feel free to say, you know, I can see that you're presenting by your argument, you're trying to create an atmosphere of unbelief, but you know, that's not really an argument against my position, would you please help me understand how my position is not tenable? And just file that away. Maybe you can use that someday. But the second 
thing that these scoffers do is they argue from the flesh in verse 3. This is what we would call the moral sort of motivation behind their argument. Their doctrine of no second coming, they say there's no second coming, that doctrine is actually rooted in a desire to live an immoral, lust-controlled life with no accountability. So what do they do? They simply just do away with the second coming as if they have the power to kind of do that. But they just dismiss it. The third argument is the argument from uniformity in verse 4 where they say, everything's exactly the way it's always been. Nothing has changed. I mean, from the very beginning, everything's still the same. So why should we believe that Jesus is coming back? I mean, we've seen no judgment, so why should we expect one now? And so these are the arguments that the scoffers produce. And they're beginning to affect Peter's friends. And so Peter is very animated here, and Peter's responding. And what does he say? How does Peter respond? Well, as we've already seen, he argues from Scripture and history. First, he argued in verses 1 and 2 that no matter what the scoffers say, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles taught the doctrine. Second, he argued from history that God already judged the world with a flood, so it's not a big deal for him to judge the world again by fire. In fact, that's very easy, and he'll do it. And then today, in verses 8 through 10, he adds two more arguments to his arsenal. He reasons from God's nature and God's character. And then he concludes with this reaffirmation of the fact that the day of the Lord will come. So, this is, this, the practical question for us this morning is this. How do you, how do we respond to such people in our society? I mean, we live under this pressure every day. Think about our world. Over the last hundred years, we have experienced in the last hundred years, um, three or four different waves. First is the wave of evolution, which denied the creator. And then we've come through a wave of post-modernity, which says that really there's no truth. And now we're seeing the rise of what we would call the new atheism, which says that the very idea of God doesn't even matter. So... This is the world we live in. And and some of you work with people who are cynical about your faith and whose behavior distresses you. And the question is, how are you handling that? In the face of opposition, how can we develop patience with our unbelieving kids, our stubborn colleagues, and our wayward relatives so that what comes out of our mouth is the gracious spirit of Jesus and not angry cynicism? In short, the question is, how can we respond in a way that's authentically Christian? And I think we learn how to do that by following Peter's example. So here's what he does. In in the face of opposition, Peter answers two questions. First, why has the day of the Lord not yet come? Okay. He's responding to the mockers in verse 4. Why the delay? I mean, if the Old Testament prophets said it was going to come and the New Testament apostles said it, why hasn't it come? He answers that. Second, when it comes, what will that day be like? So those are the questions we're going to look at this morning, and they're extremely relevant for us. And here's why. Here's why this is an extremely pressing question. Why has the day of the Lord not yet come? Because Jesus has still not returned. And that matters because Peter is speaking to Christians who are struggling with this question and they're coming under the influence of false teachers. He's speaking to the church here in verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, he calls them dear friends, or your translation might say beloved. 
Okay, so he wants to help them. They're struggling because behind the false teacher's skepticism is this notion. The false teachers are are sort of working and operating on this notion. Surely you don't think, Peter, that after all this time that Jesus is really coming back, do you? Now imagine this. Peter is writing really only 30 or 40 years after the death of Jesus. And they're already struggling with this question. Within 30 years. Which means people are already becoming that skeptical. Which means if this argument has any weight at all, it has all the more force today. Because now we're removed, we're, to, we're approaching nearly 2,000 years since the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus has still not come back. So this is a really relevant question. And people may ask you, Or may ask us as a church, you really don't believe. You people really don't believe that after 1,980 years that Jesus is still coming back, do you? (laughs) I mean, do you feel the force of that? That is how we live right there. And so Peter answers this challenge in two ways. He argues from the nature of God and the character of God. The nature in verses, verse 8 and the character of God in 9 and 10. And specifically three great truths come out about God. God's, I love this, God is eternal. God is patient. And God is just. And that's what comes out so clearly. So let's start with Peter's first answer in verse 8. Look at the text there. Why has the day of the Lord not yet come? And Peter says... First thing I want to tell you is that you don't understand the nature of God. The nature of God. God is eternal. Verse 8. Now, dear friends, do not let this one thing escape your notice that a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years is like a single day. This is a quote from Psalm 90 verse 4. What is Peter saying? He's saying... People are going around saying, why is it taking so long for Jesus to come back? But instead of asking that, why is it taking so long? Why don't you look at it from God's perspective? From your viewpoint, it looks like it's taking a long time. But from God's viewpoint, it's not. Not at all. What he's simply saying is that God looks at time differently than we do. That's the argument from eternity. In other words, you can't confine God to your schedule. And so he says, don't let this fact escape you that while you are looking at time one way, God is looking at time another way, and that's because God is eternal. Now, what does that mean theologically? God is eternal. It means that God is outside of time, even though he acts in time. He's not limited by time. Time is no barrier to God in any way. And that means what's happening in this world looks very different to God than it looks to us. I want you to think, think hard with me about this. This is hard to understand. If you, were, if you really want to engage your mind on this subject, try to pull out Stephen Charnock's book, The Existence and the Attributes of God, and read his chapter on the eternality of God. It'll blow your mind. This subject, is, it just blows the mind because we are finite people. We cannot grasp this. But listen, one of the implications of this, if that God is eternal and he looks at the world differently than we do, one of the implications of this is that God is not just like us. So we don't need to be sort of thinking about ourselves and saying God's like that. God is totally other than us. 
This means that God, here's what, here's what the eternality of God means. Just, just think about this. God is just as present here as God is present last year, as God is currently present next year. Can you wrap your mind around that? That, that just boggles the mind. It baffles us. So right away, we have to admit that eternity is so vast that there's no way our human minds can comprehend it. So what does God do? He accommodates himself and he gives us an analogy. He gives us a scale here, a time scale, so that we can at least try to point our minds in the right direction about eternity. And there's two statements here, each of which, each of which help us in a very practical and distinct way. So let's focus on this last phrase, with the Lord a thousand years are like a single day. Let's think about that. Notice he doesn't say a thousand years equals a day. A lot of interpreters have gone in crazy directions with that. Doesn't say that. He says a thousand years are like a day. It's just an illustration. It's an analogy that's meant to help us understand the brevity of life. Think about it this way. Abraham lived 4,000 years ago. Okay, so using this scale, that means that Abraham was born on Wednesday of last week. King David was born on Thursday. Christ was born on Friday. The Middle Ages slipped away yesterday, and our generation will have passed away by the time this service ends this morning. And if God is gracious and he allows the world to continue until tomorrow, another 30 generations will have slipped away. 30, 30 generations. With the Lord, a thousand years is like a single day. Now, let's, let's just press that a little further, this analogy. If you get a calculator out, that means on that scale, if your life lasted, let's say 70 years, let's just say that, then to God, that's like a hundred minutes. Just over an hour and a half. And that, that's worth thinking about. Just imagine a big shot CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Man, he is a big timer. He, he thinks he's big. He, he's got a big inflated view of himself. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't obey God. He's not seeking to make God his Lord in any sense. He's seeking to make his mark on the world. He wants to become famous. He wants to become well-known. He wants to be filthy rich. And this guy thinks he is so important And God looks down upon his life and he says, in an hour and a half, he'll be gone too. See, see, this truth is so important because it cuts through our self-importance. It corrects us. And, And we need this type of correction. Think about how important the president of the United States is. One term for Barack Obama is five minutes to God. Five minutes, two terms is 10 minutes to God using that scale. I mean, it's just, and and then Obama's off the scene. And with the Lord, a thousand years is a day. So Obama has been in office for less than six and a half minutes. (laughs) That's a blip on God's eternal radar. Do you think God's concerned about that? He's not remotely concerned about his enemies. I mean, it's hardly visible from God's perspective. Obama, who? What did he do? Who is he? Of course, God knows everything about Obama. 
But the point is, he's so little in comparison to God. God's not worried about him. He's not worried about the affairs of North Korea. He's not worried about diplomacy issues. He's not worried about any of these things. He's not worried about the economy. We just need to hear this. We need this perspective. And so, and so when we, we, we get all worked up about the world and all that's going wrong with it and how everything seems to be crashing in around us, we need to remember that to God, all of human history is, and it's over. Russ Moore is right. We should be optimistic, not pessimistic as Christians. There should be a quiet confidence about our Christianity. God is on the throne. God wins. And we need to think about the eternity of God because it shifts our perspective Godward. Now, there's a, there's a principle here for us, an application. And I, and I just want just, to just make this real clear and practical for us. We, we get so worried about the future. We get worried about our kids, our health, our plans, our finances, settling down in the perfect career. But as far as God is concerned, all of us will be in his presence in less than an hour and a half. What are you living your life for? Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Life on earth is so very Short. We're out of here. A thousand years is like a day to the Lord. So this is Peter's first answer to the question. Why has Jesus not yet come back? It's been 2000 years. And Peter's like, it's been like two days to God. You need to understand the nature of God. The second answer that Peter gives comes from God's character. And I love this verse nine. We see it in verse nine. God is patient. What a, this verse just was just awesome for me this week in worship and spending time alone with this verse. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise as some regard slowness, but is being patient toward you because he does not wish for any, any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter says, Do you know why there's a delay? Do you know why the day of the Lord has not yet come? It's not because the Lord has failed to keep his promise. It's not because he's unfaithful to his word. It's not because he doesn't tell the truth. It's not because he's powerless. It's not because he's indifferent. It's not because he's just busy doing other things. It's because he's patient He's long-suffering. He's delaying so that people can repent. That's the answer to the question. So in Romans chapter 9, verse 22, we get this awesome insight into the character of God. It says in Romans 9, 22, What if God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He is so very patient. Or remember back in 1 Peter in our sojourn series, chapter 3, verse 20, where it says the people of Noah's time were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting. Love that phrase, kept waiting. How long did it take for Noah to build the ark? 120 years. 
And the whole time he was mocked and God was maligned. And yet God was so patient, so patient. And think about our society. Every day the law of God is trampled underfoot and God himself is openly despised. In every place, people are sinning with high hand. And because of that, Arthur W. Pink says, It's amazing that God doesn't instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy him. That is amazing. It's breathtaking, really. Think about God's patience. Think about what God, by what he endures. Think about God's patience by what he endures. He endures countless, countless, innumerable adulteries, murders, lies, constant fornication, and a sex-crazed culture, thefts, deceptions, endless violations of his laws, blasphemies against his name, debaucheries, defiance of authority, challenges to his holy and sovereign will, loose lips, from profane and filthy people that is seductive speech of false teachers who are leading millions astray. Racism and hatred toward people made in his image, a massive amount of hostility and persecution poured out against his bride, the church. You think that makes him angry? You better believe it. And the superficial, shallow, and worldly lives of so many nominal Christians... And that's just the beginning of the things that God endures. He endures all of that and much more. And he is patient, patient, patient. He would have every right to consume us the moment we sin. But why doesn't he? Because of who he is. God tells us in it. Exodus 34, 6, that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, those words slow to anger, you know, those words are really precious in Hebrew because they can be translated long nosed and fascinating, which means that God has a long nose, which means it takes a long time for God's nose to burn with anger or to get hot. It's imagery. It's imagery. His nostrils. It takes a long time for him to get angry. He's long-nosed, where we get the word long-suffering. And that's why Pink says that the patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. His long-suffering is his power of self-restraint. You think about that. His long-suffering, his patience is his power of self-restraint. I'm going to crush these people. No. The anger inside of God, the righteous anger that would do us away in a moment. Can you imagine the fury? Can you imagine the anger of an all-consuming fire? Can you imagine the piling up of sin and how much righteous anger and indignation that produces in God, then what must his patience be like to restrain himself from absolutely demolishing us in a second? The power of God's self-restraint. This is God's patience. It's amazing. And couldn't we use some of that patience in our life? We so easily blow up at our wife, at our husband. We so easily get angry at our kids. And God just is saying, will you be like me? (laughs) 
Look at the pile of sin that I put up with every day. Will you be like me? Just don't lash out at your wife like that and your kids like that. Be like your God. No wonder he's called the God of patience in Romans 15.5. That's one of his titles. Here's the sad reality. The more this compassionate God of mercy patiently endures our wickedness, the more wicked and profane man becomes. Just spit in his face. That's what we do. But still God's love for sinners is such that he gives us time and space to repent and trust in him. God by nature is compassionate. God by nature is loving. God by nature is forgiving. Why is he so patient? Verse 9 tells us it's because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. I love that. Behold your God. This is his disposition. You know, every man has a choice. Every man in this room has a choice. What will you do with that God? Will you fall at his feet in humble submission? Or, you, or will you disregard his grace and malign his character? Because here's the irony. These false teachers are taking the years of God's patience and giving them an opportunity to repent. And they're turning that, those years back on God as an argument against his reliability. Where's the promise of his coming? Isn't that amazing? I mean, listen, when the, when the end comes, those mockers that Peter's talking about, listen, they will stand before Jesus and be completely speechless when Jesus says to them, why did you take the time that I gave you to repent and turn it into an argument against my character? And at that moment, there will be utter silence and shame. We take the patience of God for us And we ridicule God, we make fun of God, we laugh at God, we scorn against God. Why would you take my character and my patience and malign me for it? There will be no response to God on that day. The time God gives us is a time for repentance. Just look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, we should regard then the patience of the Lord as an opportunity for salvation. That's what it's for. So friend, what are you... What are you doing with your opportunity of repentance? Everybody asks that question. What are you doing with your opportunity of repentance? Romans 2, 4 says, Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Oh, friend, if you despise God in that way, Understand that Luke 13 says, I tell you, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The path to perishing is the path of an unrepentant heart. The path to destruction is the path of an unrepentant heart that holds on to sin and won't let it go. Those who go to hell are those who made a choice. They're responsible for the rejection of God and his free offer held out in the gospel And I want you to know that God's heart is broken when sinners refuse to repent. It is. Ezekiel 18 is a great example of that, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. 
So turn and live. (laughs) I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. And church, there's a really strong application in this for us. And it's this. We should not desire, rejoice, or hope for the death of anyone. I hope you don't do that. But rather, we should hope against hope for their repentance. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. And those of us who are his children must share his heart in this. That's an expectation. And I say that because there's a kind of Christianity out there that sounds as if, as if it can't wait for the judgment of the ungodly. And, and that could be not, that could not be further from the heart of God. God is merciful. He's merciful. Do not let this culture lead you into a hatred of certain religions or religious or ethnic groups so that what you end up doing is rejoicing in the destruction of people that God wishes would repent. You want them dead. God wants them to repent. May we not do that. I mean, pray for the Muslim world. Don't hate the Muslim world. Pray for the Muslim world. Love them. Don't hate them. That's a real struggle for us post 9-11. That's hard for us. That's really hard. And we need to admit that. Let's love our enemies and give our life away for the cause of Jesus. And emulate God in this way. So we've seen that God is eternal. God is patient. And now the final question. What will it be like when the day of the Lord comes, because it's going to come. He's given two strong arguments for it this morning. Your time is not like God's time. All that's 2,000 years of waiting is like two days for God. He's coming back. So wrap your mind around God's eternity. Then the character of God, the reason why he's taking so much time is because he wants you to repent. So two clear arguments And then he says, but look, let's be really clear about something. The day of the Lord is going to come. And when it does come, let me go ahead and tell you what that's going to be like. So here we see the justice of God, the eternity of God, the patience of God. Now the justice of God in verse 10, Peter reaffirms his assertion that Christ will return. The day the Lord will come. And here's the reality. At some point, God's love will finally yield to his holy justice. There's a point when God's patience for the unrepentant will come to an end. It's true. God may be patient with a man for 50 years, 58 years, 60, 62, 70 years of a man's life. But at some point, it will end. It will end. And that's a, that's a frightening thought. Here's, a, here's even a more scary thought. You don't even have to die for your opportunity of repentance to run out. Here's what I mean by that. The only thing that needs to happen is you need to get into a serious accident and become a vegetable and not be able to think or reason. Or I'll tell you another way. Just get a severe case of Alzheimer's or dementia so that you can't even think. That happens to people every day in this life in an unrepentant state. And they're still 
They're still alive. Their heart's still beating. They just can't think. Maybe it's a mental illness that takes over. That's a frightening thought. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. What a statement. Those are such powerful words. This will be a dreadful day for everyone not found in Christ. In fact, on that day, we're told in the book of Revelation that ungodly men will actually call out to the rocks and to the mountains saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. This is the Holocaust of God. I mean, Peter's about to get into a section here that if you want to know, we, people are all fascinated with end times. If, if you want to just a real sane, clear head, level-headed understanding of what's going to happen on the last day, just understand this passage. This is dead serious. And he said, this is a holocaust of God. There is nothing like it. And Jesus says, it will come like a thief in the night. Suddenly, people will be surprised by it. Which means, if, if, if whatever signs are going to sort of come before this time, they're not going to be so clear that people are going to be unsurprised by it. Because otherwise, what's the point of saying these people are going to be surprised? They're totally surprised. A disaster for everyone not prepared to meet God. And what will happen? Peter says three things are going to happen. The heavens are going to pass away with a roar or a loud noise. The elements, which would include, you know, the physical elements, the sun, the moon, the stars, the the physical things that make up this earth will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be exposed. Nothing will be hidden from the eye of God. So first the heavens will pass away. Jesus already said this in Matthew 24. He said, heaven and earth will pass away. Now don't just rush over those words. Think about that. Heaven and earth, everything we know, heaven and earth will pass away. Think about the significance of that. What will that look like? Well, Revelation 6 actually gives us a good idea. Here's what Jesus told John in his vision. He said this. He said, the sky will split apart like a scroll being rolled up. Take a scroll and just let it go and it just rolls up. The sky will split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island were moved from its place. Verse 13, the stars in the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree dropping its unripe figs when shaken by a fierce wind. Verse 12, the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became blood red. This is obviously apocalyptic literature and imagery, but don't miss this. It's real. It's real. The heavens and the earth will disintegrate. The sky and everything in it will fall to the ground. And understand this point. This is God's judgment. North Korea can drop bombs and fire missiles all they want, but that's not going to bring an end to God's world. God will bring an end to his world when he says so out of his mouth. People get all hung up on, well, these, you know, all these things are aligning, you know, and this piece is coming together with this piece and these two things are coming together. And when these things happen and, and, and everybody gets on the same currency, you know, and no, God is going to end the world when he wants to in his way. So just, but notice all the language here of fire in these verses, 
It's, it's wild. I mean, this is just, it's wild stuff. In verse 7, we read, the heavens and the earth are stored up for fire. Okay, in verse 10, we read, the elements making up the earth will burn and be dissolved. That means the natural earth as we know it, with its whole ecosystem and social system, will be consumed by fire. In verse 12, we read that even the heavens will be on fire and will dissolve. They will melt away with intense heat. Now, how will God do this? I I have no idea. (laughs) I mean, God could bring fire from heaven. He could stars, these things, these flaming stars in the sky. He could just rain them down, consume everything. Or there's 12,500 degree molten lava 10 miles beneath the crust of this earth. He could just open up the earth and just spew that out everywhere. I think the I think tungsten is the is the type of metal that is the last metal to melt, and that melts at six thousand five hundred degrees. So twelve thousand five hundred degrees of fire ten miles below us. That just that would just rid everything, just just like that. I don't know. God could do that. God could do something different. I have no idea, but I know one thing: it will come by the word of His power. God will speak destruction into existence because he's not only the creator, he's the destroyer. And God will do this. Now, we could end right there. We could just end the message there and just say, this is real. It's going to happen, folks. And so we need to be ready to face this God. But, you know, I don't, I don't want to because there was one word that I want you to see in verse 9 that... It should just really lead us to worship. Peter says this. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness. But is patient toward whom? What does he say? Toward you. And didn't he just say, dear friends? Didn't he just say, beloved? Who's he talking to? He's not speaking in generalizations here. He's talking about us. He's talking about you. He says, the Lord has been patient toward you. Now, in reading this, I just couldn't help but reflect on the patience of God toward me. Because God's patience is specific. And it's personal. It's for me. And and when I think about it, I... I have to say, God, Lord, you you held back the return of your dear son for me. You held back the outpouring of your judgment on the earth long enough to bring me in. Me. Me. Really? You? He did that for you? And think about God's patience towards you. God held back his judgment long enough to save you. That's what he's saying in verse 9. And and that's a sample of the love, mercy, and particular grace of Jesus Christ toward you. It's true that God operates on this grand, eternal scale. It's true. But it's also true that he operates on the most intimate level. Into God's great redemptive plan He speaks and extends grace to you and me. 
Think about God's mercy in your life. Remember that phrase, a thousand years is like one day to God? You know, each of those phrases are intended to teach us something. What about the other half of that phrase? Did you think about that? It, it's a totally different analogy. One day is like a thousand years. One day, listen, is like a thousand years. Which means if you follow that analogy and you live to be 70, that's roughly 25 million years to God. That's a long time for him to be patient with you and me. And yet week after week, we come to this place and we cast ourselves on the mercy of God. And we celebrate, we celebrate the fact that we stand on the merits of Christ. And doesn't it just amaze you that God never said and never will say that I am done with those people? God is eternal. God is patient. God is just and God is merciful. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Judgment is God's strange work. Mercy is God's default work. That's what he likes to do. He defaults to mercy. That's his heart. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So we're not dealing with an eternal God who loves to punish people. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Pleasure occurs in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance. God's delight, his happiness, his joy is bound up in his saving work. That thrills the heart of God. And God offers his mercy to you today. However long you may have resisted him. Non-Christian friend, hear me. However long you may have resisted him. However intensely you may have hated him. Whatever you have done against God, there is mercy today from this eternal, patient, merciful God in Jesus Christ. Heaven delights as men and women come to wallow in his mercy. Christian Will you wallow in his mercy today? Just take a bath. Take a shower in his mercy. Just reflect on it until it just brings tears to your eyes of joy. Amazing. One final word. Some of you may be struggling to come to Christ. And, and, it's, and it's because at the root of it, you've experienced a brand of Christianity um, that was not patient that was not kind, and that was not merciful. And I'm sorry if you've experienced that, but somehow that has shaped in your mind a perception of God that he would want nothing more than to punish you. I just need to tell you that according to this text, that's just fundamentally not true. It's just not true. I mean, if there's anything that is clear in this text, it is this, God is patient and he does not want anyone to perish. And for this reason, God sent his son into the world. And for this reason, judgment has not yet come. My friend, if you want to know what God is like, you look at the cross. You look to Jesus Christ and you see him hanging there. And he says on the cross in such powerful words, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
You want to think about the patience and the endurance of God, even on the cross. He is saying that. My friend, if you want to know what God is like, look at the cross. See the patience and endurance of Christ, even as they crucified him. He is, he is forgive, he has a forgiving disposition toward mankind. So why would you go on fighting and resisting this God? How? How can you do that? Now, just let the patience and the mercy and the love and the grace of this God lead you to repentance. That's his heart for you. And Christian, that's his heart for you. It will remain his heart for you until your dying day. I know you've had a week of full of sin haven't you? You feel filthy. You feel dirty. But you know what? I promise you, tomorrow morning when you wake up, God will be full of patience for you, full of mercy, full of grace. He loves you. Rejoice in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's good for us. It's so corrective. It's just, it's amazing, Lord, how you, you just totally reorient our perspective. We just have such crazy ideas and such unhelpful thought patterns. But Lord, you help us and we praise you for that. Lord, may this text just go deep in us this week. And may it revolutionize our thinking and our life and our behavior. We give you praise for your patience. Thank you for your gospel. What a precious reality. Thank you for your patience, oh God. Thank you for your eternality. Thank you that we, you don't think like we do. You don't reason like we, we do. Your time's different than us. Your understanding of it. So Lord, may we just be led to worship. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.